0: President-elect Donald Trump had threatened to impose tariffs on automobiles made in Mexico by GM. And as part of the automotive industry's response to President-elect Donald Trump, Ford Motor Company has decided that it will not spend $1.6 billion to create a new manufacturing plant in San Luis Potoso in Mexico. Well, Shannon Pettypiece is our White House correspondent, and she joins us now. I know you're at the Trump Tower in midtown Manhattan today, Shannon, but you're focusing on the... NAFTA regulations that would prevent the imposition of tariffs. Can you explain a little bit more about this contradiction?
1: Right. So under NAFTA, um, you know, uh, goods are able to flow tariff-free between Mexico and the U.S. and Canada and the U.S. and vice versa and so forth. Um, Yesterday, Trump tweeted, uh, you know, uh, called out GM for importing a car made in Mexico into the U.S., Um, And, you know, ended it with, you know, something along the lines of, you know, uh, if you import products here, you're going to have to pay a big border tax. Well, under NAFTA, a border tax, a tariff on goods coming into the U.S. from Mexico is in violation of that agreement. So if Trump is going to carry through on his commitment that he made on the campaign trail and he's continuing to reiterate now about putting a tax on goods coming in through Mexico, then that is going to be in violation of NAFTA. And if you violate NAFTA, which uh, no president's violated a trade agreement since the 1800s, so um, we don't know exactly what would happen. But one possibility is, you know, Mexico rule would retaliate then uh, with its own set of tariffs. Um, And then you get into the trade war (laughs) and, uh, you know, a whole variable of things can play out from there. But uh, that's sort of what we talk about when we see uh, President-elect Trump going on and, and, you know, discussing things like a border tax, uh, you know, from imports to Mexico.
0: Well, indeed, in your most recent story, Shannon, you have a quote from Republican Senator Rob Portman of Ohio. Tell us what he was talking about.
1: Well, the concern here with you know, putting a a border tax on with exiting NAFTA or, you know, getting into a trade war, is that, um, the okay, so sure, you know, it would make cars made in the U.S. more competitive. Um, It it might encourage companies to make more products in the U.S., but it also means goods coming in from Mexico go up in price. So all the Mexican-made goods that we buy uh, that are sold in stores like Walmart are going to go up in price. And also, if you're a U.S. manufacturer and you're importing, you know, let's say the fabric or the styrofoam in your seat cushions or the chairs that you're going to be manufacturing in the U.S., the price of those imported manufactured goods go up. So uh, that's the concern of, of what could happen here. Of course, there's there's ways to do this. NAFTA could be renegotiated. Um, we, you know, could have a trade war and there and prices of stuff from Mexico go up. But there's taxes or other incentives to offset it i mean there's, there is a, a lot of variables that could play out but the concern is that you know you put tariffs on cars coming in from mexico mexico retaliates and the cost of all sorts of goods starts going up and also the i should mentioned, yeah then the u.s manufacturers exporting uh goods to mexico also get hurt
0: now the uh, authority of the president, uh, when Donald Trump, uh, after he's inaugurated on January 20th, his power will be what? I mean, will he be able to, he doesn't, he has to forward any changes to treaties uh, to the Senate?
1: Right. though under, there's a clause, a very short clause uh, in the NAFTA agreement that would give the power of the president to just completely exit the agreement altogether. And he has said on the campaign trail that he could use that article of the agreement to exit NAFTA. Um, He has said rather what he'd like to do is renegotiate it and get us a really, a really great deal and much better terms for the U.S. as part of the agreement. But if Mexico and Canada did not play along, he could exercise that power and just withdraw us from the treaty.
0: And also the president would have, what, the ability to impose a 15 percent duty for 100 days, claiming what is described as a balance payments emergency. What is that?
1: Yeah. So so then let's say we did exit from NAFTA. Um, Trump said he'd want to put a 35 percent tariff on goods coming from Mexico. Um, he would not be able to do that because even if we did, uh, I guess at least legally, uh, even if we did exit NAFTA. Then imports from Mexico would have a four percent tariff on them um, under the most favored nation status. They would get this four percent tariff. Um, he could put a higher tariff, that fifteen percent tariff on, but only for a limited period of hundred days. Longer term, the most tariff, the biggest tariff you'd be able to put on would be four percent. Unless, of course, you, you know, at least with his with the unilateral powers of the presidency.
0: Indeed. All right. Well, we'll be watching this story and thank you for covering it. Shannon Pettypiece, our White House correspondent for Bloomberg News today, she is at Trump Tower in Midtown Manhattan. He decided to build a better bank, and he did so. Frank Sorrentino is the chief executive officer of Connect One Bank. They're based in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, and he joins me now. Frank, thanks for coming in. Great to see you, Pam. Uh, this idea that you built the bank—you uh, went through kind of a, a start where you know you had traditional bankers in charge, and now you know you've been running the bank for a while. What is different about having a person who was formerly a customer run a bank than just someone who is only in the banking industry?
2: So I you know from my perspective it's just bringing more of an entrepreneurial spirit to 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 the business itself and this is a highly regulated uh, industry and for many, many years did things the way they've always been done. And so we just think a little bit differently about everything we do at Connect One Bank. We think about the customer and everything we do. We, we assume the customer is in every one of our meetings whenever we have a conversation about what to do, what to do next, how we're going to run our organization. Uh, and I think that, that pervades the entire thought process of how we do things. We, we really work hard to work with a sense of urgency to get things done quickly the, at the speed that business demands. All right. And well, that's, let's. And that's, well, and, and let me. That's a little bit different than,
0: than. Let me. Then let's go to some specifics, if we can. For example, uh, regulatory reform and Dodd Frank legislation is certainly a topic in Washington D.C. I'm sure it's a topic in your offices as well. What do you expect to happen, and what effect will it have?
2: So there's lots of talk in the industry today about a complete repeal of Dodd Frank. That's probably unlikely. Uh, what's more likely is a real cost-benefit analysis. Th- th- this is an industry that has always operated with regulations and will continue to operate with regulations. We're not going to be the Wild West with no regulation. But there are lots of regulations that were put in place, specifically since Dodd-Frank, that really have no cost-benefit analysis and really may not benefit anyone. And, and the amount of data that needs to be collected and reported upon really doesn't reflect the risk that's in the marketplace. And so I think we're going to look at more sensible regulation What would forward? be an
0: example of one regulation that you feel
2: is not necessarily beneficial to either you or to the customer? So let's take it right to Main Street and the ability for a banker to make what used to be known as a character loan. I know you. I knew your family. You know, we know you had the store in town for the last 40 years. You've never... Uh, never not paid your debts yet. If we don't have every single piece of financial documentation that can demonstrate that not only can you make the payments, but you, you can pay off the loan at maturity, we can't make that loan to you. And so today that's a that's a challenge. And that's hurting small business. On the flip side of that, you know, someone who wants to buy a home with the qualified mortgage standards um, is making it much more difficult today for first time home buyers to purchase that home. The bank doesn't have as much discretion as it used to have in the past about deciding who is a qualified borrower and who isn't based on the bank. Uh, now it has to be a standard that we can apply across the entire 50 states in the United States. And I don't think that's I don't think that's appropriate. And I think we're seeing the impact of that. We're seeing home ownership uh, lag uh, for for the reasons that people can't come up with the down payment. Now there are other reasons as well, but this is certainly one of the reasons. Has bureaucracy replaced common sense? Absolutely, Uh, we've definitely. I think the pendulum swings, and in this particular case, I think we have swung the pendulum to the place where uh, it's more important to think about what the rules say as opposed to what makes sense. Uh, And and, you know, there's also this happens in business, but clearly in banking, there's a fear of failure. We can never have a bank ever fail, and I I don't think that's the standard. I think. I think we this is you know, this is a, a capitalist society and I think people make decisions and we have the appropriate amounts of capital uh, required to charter a bank. But and I think it's up to management and those boards to make those decisions. I also believe we should never have an institution that's too big to fail, right? That we could never have that that failure take place. But this notion that no bank should ever fail under any circumstances, I think is really harming the industry. It sounds like a good sounds like a good thing to do, right? Sounds like it makes sense, but at the end of the day, day. Uh, think about any other industry where you would say, uh, under no circumstances can there be a failure. Um, there'd still be a lot of buggy with businesses and uh, other industries uh, today that I'm not so sure you'd want around.
0: Interesting point. Uh, talk about tax reform and what you
2: perceive is uh, likely. So I think um, tax reform is probably one of the most likely outcomes of the recent election. Uh, I think it will benefit the certainly in the short term, uh, many companies, banks included, banks pay an enormous, people don't realize, but banks pay uh, a tremendous amount of tax for both federal and state taxes. Uh, And so any reduction in those tax rates will not only benefit other companies, but as you know, if, if a bank benefits and has more Uh, net income that goes to capital and allows banks to make more loans. So I think that will benefit uh, the economy greatly. On top of which, if everyone, as is stated, gets some sort of a tax break, that's money coming into the economy. And I think uh, we're seeing signs of that. The market's already reacted to that. The market has already reacted to that. Do you think the market has overreacted to that? Well, that's that's to be seen, right? There are those who say, uh, we're just getting going. And there are those who say it's overreacted and there are still lots of forces that will bring the market back to, uh, back to earth. Uh, I, I'm, of the, I'm in the camp that I think this is the appropriate amount of liquidity that we're going to need today. And I think the market is reacting appropriately to what it sees as the most probable outcome to uh, whether or not we get tax reform.
0: Well, I just want to bring this headline to you that President-elect Donald Trump has named uh, Jay Clayton uh, to head the Securities and Exchange uh, Commission. Uh, Jay Clayton is a lawyer, and uh, he would succeed uh, Securities and Exchange uh, Chairman Mary Jo White, another lawyer. Uh, Clayton met with Trump uh, in early uh, December and is a partner at Sullivan and Cromwell, where he worked on the initial public offering of Alibaba group. Um, uh, Frank, last point to business sentiment, Uh, more loans, less loans, kinds of loans. Give us some details. So in
2: in keeping with the tax uh, discussion, certainly people feeling that they're going to have more money, whether it's uh, a person or even businesses that think that they're uh, going to either have more wages or more in the way of net income, um, certainly feel better about the future. And we're seeing that. Our client base at Connect One definitely has been coming back to us Certainly those that are, are any way affiliated with any type of infrastructure building, right, engineers, environmental firms, architectural firms, uh, investors, real estate people are very, very uh, optimistic about what the future looks like to them. And uh, we're starting to see that sentiment spill over into the request that we're seeing today. And I think people are willing to stretch a little bit based on what they believe the future looks like. Thanks very much for coming, and always great giving us uh,
0: giving us some details about the banking industry and about uh, what might change uh, in uh, in this year. Frank Sorrentino is the chief executive officer of Connect One Bank. They're based in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. He's also the founder uh, of the bank. All right, let's get smart when it comes to health care in the United States with Brian Rye. He is our senior health care policy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence for their government team. Joining us from Washington, D.C., home to Bloomberg 991 and 105.7 HD2. Brian, uh, there is a battle going on right now in Washington. Even before President-elect Donald Trump is inaugurated, having to do with the Affordable Care Act, perhaps uh, better known as Obamacare, what is happening, and what are we witnessing?
3: Oh, well, I guess you know, Happy New Year, and here we go. Uh, thanks for having me. That was me, quick. Uh, you know, the the Republicans, you know, campaigned on a prom- on a promise for the last six years of repealing and replacing Obamacare. And for the last six years, it's sort of been a toothless promise because President Obama had a veto threat in the office, in the the White House. That's gone away now. And so now they're sort of the the dog that's caught the car. What are you going to do with it now that you've actually caught it? Uh, And you have to actually back up those promises. So the 115th Congress uh, was sworn in yesterday, so they are are ready to go. They're uh, looking to using looking at using a process uh, won't get into details, but a budget reconciliation process that won't repeal. Obamacare, word for word, but it can repeal or at least terminate uh, several key provisions: the insurance mandates, the Medicaid expansion, a lot of the taxes imposed by the law. Um, but then the question becomes: Well, okay, you've done that. What are you going to replace it with, and how long is it going to take uh, for that transition to take place?
0: Well, clearly, there's going to be a debate about it because uh, President Obama has just left the or is leaving the Capitol after a strategy meeting with Democrats. Uh, I don't know what went on in the meeting, but I would imagine it has to do with providing a defense for many of the uh, provisions of the Affordable Care Act.
3: Well, that's it, and I think at the end of the day, uh, you're going to see actually several of those provisions remain in whatever replacement vehicle Republicans come up with, uh, such as uh, protections for those with pre-existing conditions, uh, being able for you know kids to stay on their parents' plan until age 26. Um, but you know what, how long that actually takes, and well, how can you get there without having the, the unpopular parts of the law, you know, the mandates and the penalties and, and the rising premiums that that you know frankly you know have been in effect, and I think that's one of the reasons. While we have a president-elect Trump and a Republican-controlled uh, Congress, unlike what happened in 2010 when Democrats controlled everything, is the law hasn't quite worked as well as the Democrats uh, would have hoped. But they do have some things they can point to that people do like. And if there's any disruption along the way, that's certainly going to create some political headwinds because you're right, Democrats are going to shine as bright a spotlight as they possibly can on any stories uh, about people losing their coverage uh, along the way. Um, whatever the Republicans claim they're trying to do.
0: Well, I just also want to mentioned that President, uh, Vice President-elect uh, Mike Pence uh, visited the Capitol uh, earlier for meetings on the health care bill. Presumably that is about uh, Republicans put, putting forth a uh, contrary plan. A- can you tell us, uh, are there any Republicans that would need to be won over in the Senate in order to change provisions of the Affordable Care Act, or are they all on board?
3: I think they're all conceptually on board, but you know when push comes to shove, they have you know a majority of 52 uh, in uh, in the Senate, so not much room to spare. Uh, I think the the topics of discussion are going to be okay. You know how long are we going to let people linger if we're going to say, OK, we're going to repeal everything now but not come up with a replacement plan until 2019? I think you might see uh, some, a few senators be, be on the edge about that. Um, but Conversely, I think others are wary of jumping in too soon and causing a lot of disruption and sort of um, killing, shooting themselves in the foot before they can get out of the starting gate. So I, I think there's certainly going to be discussions. Um, and, and that's why you know, when, when push comes to shove, Congress is, is extremely efficient at kicking the can down the road. And I would you know, look for them to, for all the talk and bluster that we're hearing today, uh, for this to not be a smooth process and for this to take months and maybe even years rather than the weeks uh, that they're talking about now. So if you're a,
0: an investor in either hospital corporations like HCA or indeed a health insurers such as a Community uh, uh, Molina, for example, or Centene, wh- what investors should be, what should they be worried about and, and how fast should they worry?
3: Yeah, I think the the insurers that you mentioned, the Centines, the Molinas, I think they're worried about an aspect of the law, the Medicaid expansion, um, you know, that was part of the ACA. Uh, That is one thing that through this budget reconciliation process that Republicans can end pretty quickly. And that's been a good source of revenue uh, for those insurers. So that's something uh, that could go away. And then anything that increases the the number of uninsured Americans, well, that's a problem for the hospitals you outlined, uh, because if you don't have insurance, you're not able to pay those bills. That increases their bad debt debt expense can hurt their bottom lines uh, as well. So those are the, I think you touched on the two groups that are most, most eager and most anxious uh, about what's going to happen. Now, at the same time, a lot of insurers have been leaving the existing Obamacare exchanges. So it's not like that's been a great business deal uh, for them uh, on those state exchanges. So I think they're eager to see some changes to maybe draw them back in. And Republicans certainly have an incentive to try and make those as stable as possible.
0: Always a pleasure. Brian Rye, expert when it comes to healthcare policy. He is our senior healthcare policy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence for the Government Team. One of 200,000 attendees at the Consumer Electronics Show, Sandy Rowland is the Chief Financial Officer of Harman, Harman International. It's being acquired by Samsung. Sandy, thank you for being with us.
4: Thank you for having me. How's
0: the time in Las Vegas? Is everybody already geared up for computing and taking selfies inside their own automobiles?
4: Oh, wow. I mean, the energy out here is just amazing. Um, Our booth opened about 30 minutes ago, and uh, the lines are already forming. We're so excited to be hosting customers from all around the globe this week.
0: Tell us some of the items that are on view at your booth and what that means for the future of the connected automobile.
4: Yeah, well, this, we're really excited that this year we've moved the conversation from connected to intelligent and intuitive. Um, and this year, it's all about innovation that delivers an immersive, personalized experience, whether it's for the automobile, for the enterprise, or for the home.
0: So what would be some of those things? For example, navigation, uh, embedded infotainment, uh, telematics. What would be some of the details?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, all of the above. Um, What we're excited about in the automobile this year, it's all about customization and personalization. So once the car is connected, there's so much more that you can do with it. So for example, one of the things that we're showcasing this year is how we've brought in Microsoft solutions into the car. Um, The driver can have access to their calendar. The driver can make uh, access conference calls seamlessly. Um, But if they don't want to to do work, um, we've brought in entertainment solutions that you can convert the car um, really into an IMAX theater. Um, you can have individual sound zones where each and every driver can have a totally different listening experience. Um, all of these are examples of how we're customizing the solutions for the car.
0: You've also put together a package of lane departure indicators, pedestrian detection, also camera-based navigation, rear view, three hundred and sixty surround view solutions. This is uh, going to take a lot of power, battery power, in order to keep running. What is the the, the sort of demand from an automobile now in terms of you know battery used to start the car and and maybe light the the interior, but that's it's a far that's a far cry from where we are today
4: yeah for us it's it's not only about the battery but it's about how many lines of code our solutions bring into the car um, and the lines of codes are in the millions over twenty five million lines of code to bring in some of these solutions into the into the car and of course, one of the things that uh, we're really proud of is that we've been focused a lot on cybersecurity, and you cannot have a connected car without a robust cybersecurity solution. Um, We have a solution that we call 5 Plus 1, and it's been tested by the University of Michigan and NHTSA, and it's come out as the number one solution for uh, cybersecurity solutions for the automobile.
0: Now, I don't know whether you heard, but I'm sure you are aware of the efforts on the part of Ford Motor and Toyota to come together in a nonprofit, Consortium in order to make available the open source software that would allow third-party developers to write apps for the automobile. Is that? I know that you are part of that consortium as well. What uh, What is that going to bring to your offering?
4: Yeah, you know, I think one thing that's very important is that collaboration is essential. As technologies continue to advance. No one company has all the goods. Uh, the smartest partnerships will decide who the winners and, and losers are. So, um, for example, we have partnerships with Microsoft to bring in Cortana into the car. We have um, partnerships with Apple and Google to bring their solutions into the car. Um, no one company can, can do, it alone and do it alone, and we recognize that, and we see that lots of the leading OEMs are also recognizing that.
0: There's also an effort on the part of Harmon, I understand, to enhance vehicle-to-vehicle communications as well as vehicle-to-infrastructure communications. Tell us more about that.
4: Absolutely. Um, one of the key requirements is that you need to take advantage of the cloud, and that's one of the things that we are doing. It's one of the reasons we acquired Symphony Teleca uh, two years ago. You have to uh, bring in um, the bridge to the digital ecosystems and take advantage of the power of software uh, in the cloud.
0: Yeah, you've also uh, built a reputation on audio. Specifically, uh, speakers, JBL, as well as uh, other high-end uh, audio components. Uh, is, is there going to be a change in the way that they are integrated into the automobile? Because as you say, if you're looking at customizing uh, the experience, uh, having uh, just you know speakers and a radio are not necessarily going to be enough anymore.
4: You're absolutely right. So um, it's not only about having a solution that sounds good um, and looks good. We're, we're very proud of our industrial design and the sound solutions that we have. Um, but they also have to be smarter now. And that's why we're part- partnering with a lot of different companies to bring in the artificial intelligence into these solutions.
0: Well, you're also uh, more than partnering, you're being acquired by a Samsung. What what do you believe will be uh, some of the changes that we can see at Harman after the acquisition is completed?
4: Yeah, this transaction we are obviously very excited about. Um, I think that the companies are very complementary. We both have a mindset about around speed and innovation. Um, so we think it's going to be a terrific match, and we think that the combination of Harman and Samsung will allow us to take our vision around the connected car um, all the way through autonomous driving um, at a much more accelerated pace.
0: Sandy, do you like heads-up displays?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, because I
0: know that I want you to tell us about a a, a partnership that you have with a a company called Navdi uh, for aftermarket heads up driving.
4: Yeah, that's, uh, you know, one of our s- strategies has been to take some small investments in small startup companies that have interesting technologies. And so our partnership with Navdi will allow us to bring an aftermarket solution uh, to drivers who don't have those solutions embedded into their car. Um, also, this year at CES, we're showcasing a, uh, a car of the future, which has a total, um windscreen um, head-up display that covers the end-to-end windshield.
0: Wow. And what, what car is it?
4: Um, this is called the Rinspeed car, and it's, it's uh, every year at CES we've been partnering with Rinspeed to showcase what we think a car may look like in 2025, 2030. And this particular car uh, with uh, Rinspeed is one that is all about shared mobility and uh, autonomous driving.
0: Well, I think you probably have already put your order in for one. Thank you very much. Sandy Rowland is the chief financial officer of Harman International, coming to us from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, the future of the digital automobile.